0: Before there was social media or any form of people sharing en masse little snippets and jokes and stories, there was email forwards. I don't know if you remember these. There's still some people who send them out to me. You'll get these forwards that are either funny or touching or just completely false alarmist news. But one thing that I remember seeing a number of times in my email box, and I hadn't seen it in years, I just thought of it, was this supposedly instructions from the Peace Corps about what to do if you are attacked by an anaconda. I want to warn you before I read them, they're not real. They're not, they're not good instructions. If attacked by an anaconda, don't go back to this and live by this. But, but they are humorous. And it starts this way. It's ten numbered steps. Number one, if you are attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Don't try to outrun it. Two, lie flat on the ground. Put your arms tight against your sides and your legs tight against one another. Three, tuck in your chin. Four, the snake will come and begin to nudge and will climb about your body. Five, do not panic. Six, after the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet. Always the feet. Permit the snake to swallow your feet and ankles. Do not panic. The snake will begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. Eight. When the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little uh, movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, And very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth, between the edge of its mouth and your leg. Then suddenly rip upwards, severing the snake's head. Nine, be sure you have your knife. (laughs) Ten, be sure your knife is sharp. Indeed. Now, there is no truth to that whatsoever. I believe an anaconda is a constrictor, right? By the time you knew it was attacking you... You're done. Uh, it's, it's squeezing the life out of you. But I think the one thing we can glean from that that is helpful is be sure you have your blade and your blade is sharp. And that is indeed a theme throughout the New Testament, perhaps the Old Testament as well. For those who follow Christ, we must have with us our sword, our blade, and it must be sharp and we must be ready with it because by the time you know you're attacked, it is often too late. Now, we've been looking at the armor of God. I could run through all of it again, but I think most of you have been here for most of it. Uh, Here in Ephesians 6, Paul is describing the unseen battle we have against spiritual wickedness, against not flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, against our enemy, the devil, and his minions. And it is a very real battle, and therefore we must wear very real spiritual armor. We have looked at the helmet of salvation, the the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, all of it, and now we get to the sword of the spirit. Now the sword has been the primary offensive weapon in battle for almost all of human history. And the setting of this passage in this letter to the Ephesians in the Roman world is certainly no exception. A soldier might have any number of weapons, a bow, a spear, a javelin, an ax even, but without a sword, He would not consider himself well armed for most of history in fact throughout the old testament strap on your sword is code or shorthand for prepare yourself for battle get that sword strapped to your thigh that way when the battle begins you will be ready likewise with the sword of the spirit we are not ready for battle unless we have it you could have all the rest of the armor on you could have your shield up the breastplate the belt the the boots the, the helmet, and yet any soldier, if he's only in defensive armor, in a defensive position, holding fast, standing firm without striking back, eventually will be worn down by just the unending barrage of attacks. And God does not leave us in that position. He gives us this incredibly effective, offensive, and today often offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit. What Paul had in mind as he's writing here is the short sword or gladius. This is not the super long big sword you might think of a a knight having or even that you might think of mounted cavalry having in the Roman age. This, This is absolutely for up close and personal down and dirty battle where you are head to head, nose to nose with your opponent, although ideally more like shield to nose with your opponent. The long sword or great sword would be used for riding back and forth, cutting down enemies en masse, but not this one. This gladius was only about two feet long. It had a double-edged blade forged of iron, and the blacksmith would take the iron when it was molten red hot and put coal dust all over it, which created a super hard carbon coating on it. The handle then would be made of bone or wood or ivory, and it would be a very effective weapon. You would see it on the belts of legionaries walking all over Rome anywhere you went. And it was almost a symbol of the authority and might of Rome to see this gladius all over the place. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the shield, and I mentioned one of the tactics, probably the main tactic in the Roman warfare was that they would make the shield wall interlocking their shields one with another. They would try to even go the enemy into attacking. They could absorb because of their, their formations and the way that their shields were built. The brunt of the attack in the shield, then they would bring the shield up, and there was that knob called an umbro right in the middle that they would try to connect with the nose or face of the opponent, and then when they were off balance, out from a little opening between shields would come this sword, stabbing and pushing them back, and in that way they would be able to advance, absorb, uh, defend, and advance, return the attack. They very rarely even would swing or cut or slash with these swords because of the way they were so close to one another. You didn't want to hurt the guy next to you or damage his shield. And certainly there wasn't a bunch of, you know, running around swashbuckling on the field one-on-one like you see in the movies much of the time because this was the deadliest, most efficient way to use the short sword. The primary target would be the abdomen of the person nearest them, but they were taught to look for any opening even an uncovered kneecap underneath the shield wall of the enemy army. And they would go for it, stabbing with the pointy end, always the pointy end (laughs) against the enemy. Now, I think that all of this is helpful to keep in mind when thinking about how the sword of the spirit is our offensive weapon in our spiritual battle against the powers of darkness against the world, the flesh, and the devil trying to drag us down away from our progress toward Christ and back into self and sin and bondage. If you don't have a text note in your Bible, then you may want to indicate in the margin with a little note that this is the Greek word for the short sword, not the great sword or the long sword, although that Greek word is also used throughout the New Testament a number of times, so it's an intentional distinction here. One other important distinction that we might miss in our english bibles is that this is the sword of the spirit which is the word of god And it's important to notice which word is used for word Again, don't check out. I think I said it too often and people take that as a prompt to check out So maybe I should stop but they are like. Oh, that means the boring stuff's coming. Listen, this is important In, In biblical greek. There are two main words for word the first one you're very familiar with probably. logos, or if you're a frat boy, logos, right? This one is a a big word. It's a word that's important in many different fields, to philosophy. If you studied philosophy at any time, you you heard about the logos, which is the principle of order and the knowledge in the world. In in fact, if you talk about any discipline now, psychology, anyology, right? Psychology comes from suke, which means soul or self- and then psyche becomes like, you know, the mind. Uh, ology comes from Lagia or Lagos. The study of, like, the whole matter of it. The whole thing. It's a big, broad word. And along those lines, St. John calls Jesus himself the Lagos. Remember, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This isn't that word for word. This is the word rhema. If you want to write it down, it's R-H-E-M-A using English letters. It means word in a much smaller sense. It's an utterance, or literally a saying. Now, both of these words, Lagos and Rema, can describe the scriptures, but in different aspects. Here, the emphasis is on these actual words that God himself has uttered, what God has said, the revelation which God has given of himself. The truths, the individual truths he has revealed. One whole made of many, many individual sayings. With a primary emphasis, of course, on the gospel. Look at 1 Peter 1. He speaks of the word, rhema, the word of the Lord, which remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There's a message, an utterance of salvation in Jesus' name that was preached to you. And it's powerful. But of course, not just passages that we might go, oh, that's a gospel passage, but all the passages, and by the way, they're all gospel passages, they're all part of God's word. All scripture is God breathed. Remember that second Timothy 316, every jot and tittle is inspired by the Holy Spirit and all of it finds its fulfillment in the believer also through the work of the Holy Spirit. In in many ways, I think of like during the Revolutionary War when Washington spies would write a letter and then on that letter they would also write a second message maybe by overlapping some of the letters on the original letter in invisible ink. And then they'd send that out if a British officer happened to get a hold of it or some kind of a a, uh, soldier at a checkpoint it would check out, it would look just like whatever, I need this much barley or something. But then when the intended recipient got it, they'd apply a reagent, and it would show the real message. Now, I don't want to get Gnostic where the the truth of God's Word is hidden from people, but in order for us to truly internalize and understand the depth of the supernatural truth in God's Word, the sword of the Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us. This is why some of really the smartest bible experts who are alive right now the people who every time pbs makes a documentary about something involving jesus or the church or the bible the the same talking heads you see again and again who know an awful lot about the transmission of the text the original world in which these events took place many of them don't know the first thing about what the gospel message actually is they don't get it and you can tell within a few sentences of them trying to describe what the meaning of it is. The difference between knowledge and wisdom. This is the sword of the Spirit because it's given by the Spirit both in its original inspiration and in its preservation and in the illumination in the mind, in the heart, and the eyes of the believer reading it. As believers, then, we must study the Bible in order to understand what the truth is is. And this requires hard work. And if you haven't worked hard at trying to understand a passage, if you haven't wrestled with some passage of the scriptures and you've been a Christian for a long time, it may be time to ask yourself some tough questions about why not. Or at the very least, disabuse yourself of some false impressions of what it means to get into God's word and how that works. One of the greatest preachers of my lifetime was Haddon Robinson. He was he was just amazing he would i watched him preach a lot of times and he'd kind of walk around just like this sometimes he even walk around like this and he'd talk like this kind of old-fashioned if you're on a train and you speak and all of his illustrations are from old times and yet you're locked in and he wrote a lot of books about preaching uh probably biblical preaching by haddon Robinson is the most important book that was written about preaching in the last 50 years And this is what he says about studying the Bible. He's talking to preachers, but also to to everyone who calls himself a Christian. He says, The people involved in the public relations department of the church always make Bible study sound as though it is easy. It is not. It takes a great deal of effort to understand this text, and even more to understand how it applies to our lives. We like to think that when we study the Bible, it's like getting a shot of spiritual adrenaline. It gives a spiritual high. Studying the bible is more like taking vitamins. You gulp down a couple of vitamins in the morning But no wave of energy flows through your body. You take the vitamins because they build you up They protect you against the diseases in the environment and in the long pull they make you strong Now I know that we've all experienced reading god's word and there is some kind of spiritual high or shot of Whoa, that is amazing. But that's not always the case, and that should not be our expectation. That's not why we read it. And I like Haddon Robinson's vitamin illustration because it it, it addresses both the kind of daily slog of doing this again and again and again, even when we don't always immediately feel the benefit, and the fact that it's got this strengthening aspect. Only vitamins strengthen us in a very natural way. And the scriptures do it in a very supernatural way. It's hard work, but it's not just our hard work that helps us to understand the scriptures. Again, it's got to be the Holy Spirit because it's not the sword of your brain or the sword of your mind. It's the sword of the Spirit. And like the helmet of salvation last week, and unlike the shield of faith, it's not something you take up. The, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit are things that We receive. We receive them from God. We receive them from and through the Spirit and His work in our lives. Anyone can get a hold of a Bible here in America. With your cell phone, you have a hundred translations at your fingertips at any moment. If you didn't have one, Gideon's probably hook you up for free. But in order to benefit from it, you don't just have to receive the copy. You have to receive the Word of God It's the sword of the Spirit. We receive it by the illumination of the Spirit, meaning you have to be open to the leading and illuminating of the Spirit in reading it. In 1 Corinthians 2, the apostle speaks of these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So having received the spirit, we now can receive the word in a way that builds us up in a way that equips us for the battle ahead. And just like God used the human authors in writing and authoring the Scriptures without overriding their personalities, even their individual writing styles, He uses our minds, our understanding, to comprehend and internalize His Word. Which is why, from the very beginning, God's people have always studied intently God's Word. No legionary would be caught going into battle without His sword— But he also wouldn't be caught going into battle without proper training and practice and discipline with his sword. Hundreds of hours of drills and sparring. And they would use a wooden gladius, which was intentionally twice as heavy as the actual thing. Like when you see a guy on deck box and he's swinging with either two bats or a weighted bat so that when he gets the bat in his hands, it feels like it's light and easy In the midst of battle, then, the soldier would feel like his sword was easy to wield because he had done the hard work beforehand. He'd done the drills, the sword drills. If you grew up Baptist like I did, you've probably done sword drills. That's the name of the game where you sit down. Somebody says, Mrs. Davenport, who leads the Sunday school opening, says, swords drawn, and she had a real military kind of feel about her. And uh, she even had kind of the buzz cut. She's with the Lord now. Uh, and she'd say, swords drawn, and you'd take out your Bible. You couldn't have tabs or you were cheating. And she would say, okay, 2 Corinthians 3 one," And you'd have to find it, be the first one to get there, stand up and read that verse. And then you won that round. And then you'd sit down and you'd feel smug and you'd do another one. And sometimes there were prizes involved and things. And I think that was a good practice for us to learn where God's word, you know, where each book is and how many chapters are in each book. And I think there are a lot of Christians who are adults who've been Christians for decades who don't know the books of the Bible in order. Maybe something to work on there. You probably tell me what happened in season three of your favorite television show, but maybe not in chapter three of your favorite book of the Bible. That could be problematic, but still this is not exactly the kind of sword drill I'm talking about. That's just finding the right page. You still have to read and receive the text itself to give yourself to the Spirit and open your mind to His leading so that you can understand what is being taught. Our actual sword drills should be designed to drill God's Word, the content of this Vrema into our minds and hearts. In fact, we should have many texts of Scripture at the ready, hidden in our hearts, locked in our minds, just like jesus did if this is how jesus equipped himself to go into the battle how can we do anything else it's a vital part of spiritual warfare and it has been from even before the incarnation of christ go back to psalm 119 i have stored up your word in my heart that i might not sin against you the more of your word goes into my heart the more I am able to resist temptation and not sin against you. Let me say this as clearly as I can. To use the sword of the Spirit as it's presented here in the armor of God, you must know actual utterances of God found in the Scriptures. And you notice how we sometimes call them Scriptures, plural? This is one word made up of many words, many rhema's. In Revelation 1, we read about Jesus in this apocalyptic vision, having in his right hand seven stars, and from his mouth comes what? Double-edged sword. And his face is like the sun, shining in full strength. And the word for sword there is not this short sword. It's the the long sword, the great sword. And that makes sense. That's the whole word. It all comes from Jesus. If if you had a real red-letter Bible... All the letters would be read. It is a, a message from Christ to us. He himself is the word, and this is the Logos, this, the, the huge long sword. And, and this is what he's using from the back of the white horse of war that we read about in the book of Revelation. But this, in Ephesians 6, is the short sword. You and I can bear it, a rhema at a time. Let me ask you, how many passages of scriptures can you call to memory and recite? The answer for many is not as many as I used to be. That's understandable, but also something that you can address and fix. Let me ask you this, then. If you have some, a few, you say, "Eh, maybe four or five. What are they about? Are they all about how God has great plans for you? How you can do anything? Are they all about you? When you're tempted, you don't want to point back to yourself. Trust me, that is not a good move. That is what the devil's already trying to do, to point you to yourself, your own strength, your own weakness, your own fallenness. Broaden your skill with the sword by widening the passages you hide in your heart and multiplying the passages you hide in your heart. This is not some separate extracurricular thing that really advanced overachieving Christians do. This is the core of how we as Christians live holy lives and honor God. I've had people tell me you know i tried that and it was just too hard i struggled to learn even like 10 verses and, and even those i can barely remember anymore because you have to keep working on them or they fade away like anything else and that's true it's it's hard work it, it really is and it's not the spiritual shot of adrenaline it's it's not like a blast of dynamite it's more like a river cutting a channel cutting even the grand canyon Right? Over time, it bears down and bores down more and more into who we are. In like fact, maybe that's a very fitting metaphor because we think about how neural pathways form themselves. And in order to get rid of old and, and uh, bad habits and, and bad thought patterns, you've got to replace them with good and righteous things. And one way to do that, probably the most effective way, is with God's Word, making that be the deepest channel in your mind and in your heart others have said you know i'm just it's not me i'm not good at memorizing things never have been some people they pick it up right away some people it's it's very very difficult i remember the guy told me that my classmate when we had to we had to learn the to be or not to be soliloquy and and uh he it, this was when when inkjet printers were very very new so this was very clever of him he printed the whole thing in like a 0.1 font he must have had really good eyes too cut it in a little strip, wrapped it around his pen, and slowly ate it. Well, he wrote down each word. And I remember saying, why didn't you just learn it, man? It would have been less work. And I knew the answer was really because I wanted to get away with this. But he said, I just, I can't memorize things. It's not fair that they ask us to. Well, it's true that for some people, memorization comes easier than for others. But those others just have to work harder at it if it's important to them. Or I've heard, I'm too old, I used to be good at this, but not anymore. Listen, I'm only in my mid-40s and I already have seen the reality of this. And it's a, it's a physiological fact that remembering things gets harder as your brain gets older. And yet, God's Word still commands us to be about that work. And I say, start anywhere. Anywhere that gets you closer to having God's word in your heart is good Take a bunch of different colors of the highlighters You got to get the special ones that don't bleed through the onion skin pages and and start highlighting verses that are important Do it in different colors for different kinds of things When i'm tempted with this or when i'm struggling with with despair depression is this one or whatever and begin that way So that you can flip over and and go. Oh, yeah, this is a verse and the more you encounter it the more you will remember it and the more it will be part of being in your heart. In fact, using the sword in battle makes it far more likely to be impressed in your heart than just reading it again and again in, in the morning with you know, your coffee while you're sipping it and, and half, half awake. But starting anywhere is good. Writing verses out. Writing for many people. For me, writing it will actually help impress it in my mind. Write it on three by five cards and put them on your mirror in the bathroom or on your dashboard in your car if it has something to do with forgiving people and not, you know. Is there a verse about not cutting people off when they cut you off? No? Good. Uh, but, you know, you, you want to put these things where you will see them, where you will remember them. Repetition of passages in many different forms. You can memorize memorize verses thy word is a lamp unto my feet and we just sang that so it's fresh in your mind great song by the way amy grant from the 80s love that one and it gets in your mind because you're singing it perhaps if instead of listening to just whatever pop dreck is on the radio right now you put music that is singing god's word and you you can hide god's word in your heart that way very easily Christians who have spent their lives in liturgical traditions often know hundreds of verses without ever sitting down to memorize them specifically because it is simply part of how they worship each and every week in the different seasons of the church calendar. So it's repetition in prayer, in song, in worship, in meditation, And this is how God has worked throughout the ages. The Old Testament, there's these standing stones that you set up. So every time you walk by this place, you go, that's where God did this thing. There's the Passover meal, which is itself a memorial of what God did when he brought the people out of Egypt. And then in the New Testament, the fulfillment of that in the Lord's table, in Holy Communion, a memorial to to be a standing stone for us, an Ebenezer, as we think about what God has done for us. Well, repetition is good, and repetition involved in struggling with a text is perhaps even better. The more you get into what it means and dissect it and look at every word and think about what it means for us, the more likely it is to get locked into your heart and your head. Going over again, like like Kim just said, You might not even need to open the scriptures this week, because it's the same text we've been looking at for weeks and weeks as we go through it one piece of the armor at a time. That's intentional. I want you to have this one locked in your mind. We want to be asking not just, have I done my Bible reading for today, but have I asked, what does this mean? What did it mean for them initially? What does it mean for me today? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, I ask with all my strength what God is trying to say to us through the scriptures. Since I have learned to read the Bible this way, it becomes more marvelous to me every day. Is the Bible feeling old to you? Old hat, you've already read it, and you want it to feel new and marvelous again? Start asking with all your strength God, what are you saying to me right now? Wait a minute, God is saying something to me right now? Yes, that's what this is. One practical bit of advice. Pick a version and stick with it. You start memorizing in different versions, it gets confusing. Even when I went from the NIV to the ESV, when they're fairly similar, and maybe that's part of the problem, I struggled greatly with that. In my mid-20s with my brain at very spongy stage, I'd start trying to think of the verse, I'd I'd think of the NIV, the ESV, they'd blend together. The King James is always bubbling under there from uh, grade school. If the the ESV came out now, even though I prefer it, I don't think I'd make the pivot because I don't have the the elasticity in my mind to do it. I would say, you know what, I've got the NIV, and the NIV is good, and let me keep on learning that. That's, That's just a practical idea. What can I do to get some of the obstacles out of the way of memorizing these things? God will help you remember his word, but, you know, don't get in the way of it. And, and, you know, when we learn God's Word, also, the, the reason you learn it, the motivation for which you learn it, the, the intent with which you learn it matters. I think we've all been part, again, if we were raised in the church, or even if you weren't in school with things that are, that are not God's Word, we've all been part of learning something just so you could spit it back out, right? VBS. You get one of these cool erasers shaped like a penguin if you can say today's verse. All right. All right oh thank you and away we go i get home my dad says oh that's a cool eraser how'd you get that i said the memory verse what's the memory verse uh (laughs) he took the eraser he said you can have it again when you tell me what the verse was and he should have you know there's there's reasons why that doesn't work why i can't tell you the to be or not to be whether it's his noble or in the mind to suffer the slings of an error, maybe I could. But there's a reason why sometimes you can remember something, sometimes you can't. One of them is that you've just put it in your short-term memory, and that's how God designed our brains. If you just wanted to learn it to be able to spit it back out in a moment so you could say you did it, or you could check off another one from the list, it's not very helpful. I cannot tell you what level we parked on in East Lansing when we went to Charlie Kang's two weeks ago. Because I couldn't even tell you what parking structure we were in. I don't think it was the hamster tubes one. But I don't know. It doesn't matter now. It's in, it's out, it's gone. It doesn't matter. When we learn God's word intentionally to remember it for life, ideally, we put it into the long-term memory. And we do it through repetition. And we do it through how carefully we approach it and how important it is to us. And when we do that, yeah, sometimes you go, oh gosh, I'm confusing two things, aren't I? What verse is that? What chapter is that? But trust me, when you lock these things into your heart, Jesus will bring them to your mind through his spirit. In fact, Jesus promised his apostles in John 14 that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, that's a a promise that doesn't apply directly to us. He was saying, when you write down the Bible, you'll remember everything I said. But it's the same spirit... And it's the same word. And we all, I think, probably have stories, experiences of our own and that we've heard, where God brings just the right text to your mind and you go, I didn't even know I had that one. I probably couldn't tell you chapter and verse, but God brought the words into my mind. Whether it was something someone else needed to hear, whether it was something I needed in that moment, the Spirit illuminates our minds with that word. I think of all the struggles we could avoid, if we continually hid God's word in our hearts, all the temptations we could answer, all the doubt and despair we could cut to pieces. But in this age, when everything has been made easier and quicker, we think there must be some shortcut to this. And so we get devotionals like Jesus calling where you open it up and someone says, forget the Bible. It's long and boring. Instead, I'll just make up what I think Jesus said to me. And I'll make a billion dollars. Here you go. Oh, you know what? They want a second edition. Jesus said more stuff to me. What do you know? Open the Bible. Open God's word. That's where God is speaking to you. And many people, I think, just don't even realize or accept that they are involved in warfare. This is deadly serious. The Bible is not something to be trifled with. Our swords become decorative rather than functional. And that can be problematic. A few of you have Bibles that are just barely holding on. They're like, I'm old, I'm tired. they are duct tapes holding them together and all this. I love to see that. Gosh, I love that. That means that you have been opening God's Word and turning the pages and, and there's little dog ears and tears and there's stuff stuck in there and there's underlines and, and I can see in a physical form what God has been doing in your heart and in your life. I can tell this isn't decorative. This isn't the prop. This is, this is something that is used in real battle. I have so many Bibles, most of mine look like they're decorative. And I have some that are even kind of used often as a prop. When I go into a hospital to visit someone, I'll bring a Bible in, and sometimes I'll read a verse to them, and sometimes we'll just chat, and I'll pray. And even if I know... I am not. Glad. I carry the Bible partially because being part of a tradition where we don't have a collar or something to distinguish us, maybe someone will see me and say, gosh, could you pray for me? And that's happened. But we don't want to carry God's Word around like a prop. This should be something that is used and used regularly in our lives. Even in, in The Chosen, which was a, a great little show that you should be watching if you're interested in, in uh, the lives of the apostles and things, a, a Roman soldier will pull out his sword in kind of a threatening, like, hey, I'm, I'm a rogue. They would take it out only if they were going to kill you. That's a fact. Our, our Bibles are here to be used efficiently and to be used to put the enemy to flight. In fact, put to the sword in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike is a, a shorthand for kill, right? It doesn't mean to take out and threaten. It doesn't mean to flash around or say, look how nice this is. Rather, it means you are going to do something decisive. When Saul was told to put everyone to death, put them to the sword, and he spared King Agog, Samuel the prophet went nuts on him, did what Saul would not do, and cut Agog to pieces, and then turn around and began to berate Saul and told him, well, you've kind of lost God's blessing as God's king. Spurgeon put it this way, many try compromise, but if you are a true Christian, you can never do this business well. The language of deceit fits not a holy tongue. The adversary is the father of lies, and those that are with him understand the art of equivocation, but saints abhor it. If we discuss terms of peace and attempt to gain something by policy, we have entered unto a course from which we shall return in disgrace. A good study, a case study, for how we should use God's word when tempted or when encountered or attacked by the enemy, is Jesus in the, in the wilderness. You see it in Matthew 4. You see it throughout the Synoptic Gospels, where he is out there. He's been, he's been fasting. He's feeling physically weak. He's, he's been communing with God, though, and so he's been fed spiritually. And at the end of that time, Satan said, now is my chance, now is my opening, and he came in to tempt Jesus. And you see, in the very first temptation... If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. How clever his schemes are. Because in that is, if you are the Son of God. I'm kind of leaving that door open. Convince me. Well, what what do you want me to do? Just turn these into... You've done the fasting. Just make some bread. There's no reason you shouldn't be able to do that. But look at that one word at the beginning. If. What is he doing? Right before this temptation, what happens? Jesus is baptized, fasting, but before that, baptized, yes, right before he's baptized, and then when he comes out of the water, there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son, yes, this is my son, now Satan is saying, hmm, if you are his son, what's he doing? He's casting doubt on what God has said, on the rhema, the the utterance of God, just a little doubt, just like he did in the garden, right? Did God really say if you are the son of god jesus is not going to enter into that he's not going to have a debate he gets out his sword which is the word of god and he just says man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from simultaneously defeating satan's temptation with the sword of the spirit while teaching us millennia later about how to use the sword of the spirit quoting this thing about how we live not by bread alone, but by every word, every frame that comes from the mouth of God. Talk about being adept with the sword. Then he comes at him again, and and this time Satan tries to twist Scripture. And he says, well, you know, remember it it says in the Scripture that uh, he will send his angels to attend you, and they'll catch you so you don't strike your foot against the stone, so why not throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple? Now Jesus is in a tough spot, right? Either he has to disagree that God's word is true, or he has to give in to Satan's temptation. Nope, not at all, because Jesus understands what the Reformers called the analogy of faith. It's put this way in our our London Baptist Confession. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. How do we interpret scripture with scripture? And that's what Jesus does. He says, you're violating a very clear commandment. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is one reason why you can't rely on just Googling Bible verses for when I'm tempted to X, when you find yourself tempted, or Bible verses for when I am, whatever your situation. That's like if you get jumped in a dark alley and you say, hold on just a second. Well, I watch some YouTube videos about disarming an attacker. You're not going to do it. And finally, Jesus brings it home with this third temptation when he says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, you shall love the Lord your God and serve him only. And and he sends him fleeing, efficient, opening, stab, done. No negotiating, no terms of peace, no compromise. That's how spiritual warfare is won. As I mentioned, there was not much fencing or swashbuckling going on on these battlefields when the Roman Empire was involved. There's not really parrying with the sword, even. Just lots of stabbing and thrusting. That's that's how Jesus works as well. And I've heard this presented as a a kind of this fencing, you know, huzzah kind of thing. And the first temptation comes, and he goes ta-ting with the sword. And the second one comes, and he goes ta-ta! And then the third one comes, and finally it's parry, parry, thrust, and he defeats Satan with that third verse but I don't think that's what we're seeing at all. Rather, he is wearing all of the armor, certainly. He is righteous. He is ready, the footwear. He is wrapped in truth. He is salvation. He has the shield of faith up, and with it, he extinguishes the arrows as they come, and each time, like that Roman legionary, he takes and uh, and extinguishes the, the flaming dart that comes his way, and then he turns with the sword and attacks And the third time, it takes three times when your enemy is Satan himself, but three blows and even Satan was defeated. A rhema is a spoken word at its core. That's that's what's implied, a spoken word. It was spoken by God and it's to be spoken by us, spoken to one another and spoken even to the enemy. That's what Jesus did. He didn't think it, he said it. Now, he was out in the wilderness, so he didn't have to think, is anyone going to think I'm weird? But I don't think it would have mattered to Jesus. They already thought he was weird. Try that. You're tempted? Don't just go, oh yeah, there is that one. Say it out loud. Say it with authority. That might feel weird. Yeah, weirdly powerful. Trust me. Try that when you are tempted. Try that when you are discouraged. Speak God's word out loud. It is an utterance, and it's to be uttered or proclaimed. We can do what Jesus did. There's a movie called The Edge that I, that I really like about two guys who find themselves stranded in way up in the woods, I think in Canada. And there's a, a bear that's tracking them. And Anthony Hopkins is this awesome old guy who's read a lot of books and he knows all sorts of stuff about survival. And he's trying to convince Alec Baldwin, who's this sort of sniveling, like, oh, we're doomed kind of guy, that they can kill the bear. And he talks about these things that he's read and how it's possible for, for two men to, to kill even a, a grizzly bear. And, and he says to him, what one man can do, another can. And he makes him say that over and over again. What, and he gets them all amped up. And he says, we're going to go kill the expletive. And they, and they go and they do kill the bear. And I think that's an important concept here. When we read about Jesus being tempted at his weakest in the wilderness with no one even around to help him and coming out on top. And we say... Well, it's, it's God, right? It's God in the flesh. Of course he was going to win. What one man can do, another can do. What one person can do, what one human can do, another human can do. And Jesus did not go toe-to-toe with Satan in all of the omnipotent power with which he had cast him out of heaven to begin with with his divinity protecting him from really being affected by these temptations. No, he, the man, the true man, went toe-to-toe using the very same armor you and I have access to, the very same armor that God wears in Isaiah 53, the very same armor that you can don and keep on throughout your life. What Jesus did in the face of this temptation, you can do but he had God's Word hidden in his heart. He had these sayings in his mind, and the Spirit called them forth, and he used them to send Satan running. Try this. Speak these things out loud. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the crema of God. He said, let there be light. He didn't say, let there be light and then created light. And there was light no he said let there be light and there was light the speaking is the creating that's how powerful god's words are and that's what we have access to that same power this is the only offensive weapon here and they could have outlined others because roman legionaries had a javelin a pilum that they would use it was used in every single battle at the beginning And he doesn't say, also, you've got the javelin. No, he says, you've got one. I'm I'm intentionally limiting it to one offensive weapon. Don't get cute. Don't get creative in how you approach temptation in your life. Don't find yourself depending on your cleverness or your willpower or your reason, trusting your own wisdom, leaning on your own understanding. I've got to deal with this stuff in my own way. It's a bonehead move considering who our enemy is and considering the power of the one weapon we are choosing then not to rely upon. Think about this. Jesus, who is the exact imprint of the Father, who is the very glory of God, when tempted to glorify himself, didn't say, seriously, Satan, you think that would work on me? You're going to try to get me to chase my own glory instead of the Father's? Give me a break. No, He said, I've got a passage in my heart that I can use to counterattack that will send you away. Are you more clever than Jesus in how you handle the enemy? If so, you must be more successful than Jesus was in your encounters with the enemy. A single passage of scripture will do far more good than a hundred volumes of the world's philosophy or all the cute, pithy catchphrases on all the cute little silkscreen things you can find. Any inspirational or motivational guru, whether or not they're pretending that they're a preacher of the gospel, certainly more good than our own clever, bespoke approach to spiritual warfare. When, when we get that way, I mean, the house always wins. Once, you, once negotiations start, you've lost. I think the question that this text poses when we get into those situations is why are you negotiating when you should be stabbing? That's what the word of God is, a sword. If Eve had simply reiterated when Satan said, oh, but did he really say? Yes, he really said. You didn't hear me the first time? He said you can eat of all of the trees except this tree. She'd have been fine. We'd have been fine. Albert Barnes, in his excellent Barnes Notes, commentaries writes, the moment we leave scripture and begin to parlay with sin, that moment we are gone. It is as if a man should throw away his sword and use his naked hands only in meeting an adversary. There's a, a church tradition that for a while had as their catchphrase, maybe still, God is still speaking. And as soon as I heard that the first time, I remember thinking, Hmm, what do you mean by that? I know a bit about this tradition and in this denomination, and it, it makes me wonder. God is still speaking, in a sense, certainly. But they mean God is updating this stuff. He's giving us newer, better stuff so that he can keep up to date with what the world finds acceptable. Maybe I'm being uncharitable, but with those that I've actually challenged on what it means, that's essentially what they've told me. I can promise you he's not doing that. However, God is still speaking through these words. These words which were inspired by the Holy Spirit when they were written are still inspired by the Holy Spirit when you hear them and when they are impressed on your heart and your mind. For the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. A double-edged sword. The word of God there, the rhema of God. Any individual passage is that sharp, is that effective. Put them in your heart. Put them in your mind. Be like David. Remember when David was on the run? He had his mighty men with him. And, you know, there were a rogues gallery at the time. They were not respectable. And they fled and went to the, the priest who was in the tabernacle. And he said, we need food. He said, all I have is the consecrated bread. He said, we'll take that and ate some of the bread. And then he said, I hate to be more trouble, but I need a sword. I haven't got one. And he said, the only sword I've got here is the sword of Goliath. You remember that giant that you killed? That sword is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Now, David hadn't carried that thing into battle a bunch of times. It seems like it immediately went into kind of the trophy room and was placed there behind the ephod. He hadn't inspected it that we know of or had it appraised. He hadn't had any smiths or metallurgists look at it and say, wow, this is very fine. But he had used it to chop the head off a giant. And so he knew that it worked. And the more we experience using God's word to come out on top when the enemy comes after us the more we will recognize there is none like it i need to do the sword drills i need to hide god's word in my heart following christ's example yes when it comes to human enemies we don't strike back when we're provoked by our our worldly opponents we turn the other cheek that is what we do but in our spiritual battles meekness is the opposite of what we're going for christ himself puts that sword in the hand and he says do like me And then he shows us in the wilderness how to deal with the devil. Was it St. Bonaventure or karate champion Johnny Lawrence who said, the best defense is just more offense. Either way, I think it is good advice. Put to death indwelling sin and put to flight Satan, the God of this world, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to think of your word not as some cute little crutch that we can pull out only when we are in trouble, not as some book full of loopholes that is there to to, uh, give us an out when we've been foolish. Lord, not as a chore that we check off our list in the morning so that we can have a lucky day, but rather as a great gift, as our bread, the light for our path. Lord, as our weapon, to defend ourselves, and to counterattack against the evil one, to send him running, just as your son Jesus did. We pray that you will fill us with an unquenchable thirst that will be quenched only by this word, that we won't find anything else that scratches our itch, that, Lord, will be drawn again and again and again to your word, that we would want to hide it in our hearts, That we would want to read and reread it and sing these words and pray these words. That we would want to struggle with and wrestle with them like Jacob wrestled with God all night long. That we would want to get to the bottom of it and then find that there's more bottom under that. We thank you for these amazing words of eternal life. And Lord, we, all of us, confess that we have not treated them with the reverence that we should. That we have not committed ourselves to them with the discipline that we should. That many of us have suggested, even in our own private thoughts, that we have enough of your word down. And maybe we don't need to do any more deep study. We don't need to hide any more passages in our hearts. We don't need to commit any more of these sayings to memory. Lord, we pray that you would just cure us of that sort of poisonous thought. That your spirit would be the antidote to it. That instead you would fill us with a desire to fill ourselves with your word. That, Lord, you would show us, even this very week, as we are tempted, as we are attacked by the enemy, as as the enemy may come to us and try to saddle us with guilt and shame for sins long under the blood of Jesus, that your word would come to mind, that we would recognize we know more of it than we thought we did. That your spirit will illuminate to us what it means and how valuable it is for a follower of Jesus. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen.